0: Hey there Cramaholics, welcome back, it is your host Kinsey, I'm here with another Friday episode. On this episode of Crimaholics, I will be discussing the murder of Denise Amber Lee. She was a 21-year-old mother of two boys when she was taken in broad daylight in the middle of cutting her son's hair on the back porch of their home in Northport, Florida. Denise was born on August 6, 1986. She was the oldest child of Sergeant Rick Goff of the Charlotte County Sheriff's Department and Sue Goff. Rick had spent years working undercover and said his entire outlook on life changed when Denise was born. Sue said Denise was a wonderful child, always smiling and so kind to others. When Denise was a senior in high school, she met Nathan Lee, who was attending community college at the time. Nathan was an outgoing jock and Denise was a quiet math whiz. Denise played the flute and Nathan had played the trumpet in the band. Nathan said that Denise would go to the football games just to be able to see the band play. By all accounts, Denise was a very shy girl. However, it was Denise who had made the first move and asked Nathan out on their first date, which took place on January 19th. One month later, they went on a date to the mall and dinner for Valentine's Day. While at the mall, the two of them went into a really fancy jewelry store and Nathan had bought a $40 silver heart-shaped ring that Denise had picked out. She absolutely loved this ring and just fell in love with it and never took it off. Even after her and Nathan had gotten engaged and married, Denise still wore that heart-shaped ring on her finger every single day. And later on, this ring would become a very essential part of this entire case. Not long after two of them got married, they gave birth to their first son Noah and their second son Adam. On January 17th, 2008, Noah was two years old and Adam was just six months old. On this particular day in 2008, Denise was out on the back porch with both of her boys giving Noah a haircut. But little did she know that there was a man driving around her neighborhood looking for his next victim. Nathan worked three jobs so Denise was able to stay at home with their kids. On this day, she had given him a call around 11.21 a.m. The two of them had talked about how nice the weather was and Nathan suggested that denise should open up the windows to be able to air out their house denise told nathan that she had already had the windows open and the two of them talked for just a few more minutes and she tells nathan that she will see him when he gets home that evening just like any other day around 3 30 that afternoon nathan is on his way home and he tries to call denise to let her know that he would be home shortly but she never answers the phone this is not unusual as she's likely taking care of the boys and he knows that she will return his call pretty quickly. But when that call does not come, he tries to call her phone again and again he gets no answer. He calls her for a total of six times and Denise never answers the phone and this starts to really worry Nathan. Something was wrong. As Nathan arrived home, he was really relieved to see Denise's car in the driveway. However, this relief did not last long. As he entered the home, he noticed immediately that it was very hot in the house, and all of the windows were closed, even though Denise said she had opened them. He could hear the children crying in their room, and he immediately ran to them. When he got into their bedroom, he had found both of the children in just one crib. This prompted him to call 911 right away, and he told the dispatcher that he could not find Denise, and this was not like her at hall to ever leave her children alone. This would be the first of 5911 calls made regarding this same case that day. Nathan hung up the phone with 911 when they let him know that the police were on the way to his house. His second call was to Denise's father, Rick. Rick immediately knew that something was wrong, as he also knew that Denise would never leave her young children alone in the home. Denise's father, Detective Rick Goff, was able to call in multiple agencies to help look for Denise because he just knew, as her father, something was wrong. By the time he arrived, there were already several police officers at the home. They had begun taping off the area around the home to. Any evidence that could have been found. The efforts to find Denise were really amped up. Police officers from all around the county started looking for her, and many even set up roadblocks to prevent anyone from coming and going from Northport. The police quickly start questioning people in their neighborhood in hopes that some type of information would lead them to Denise's whereabouts. Denise's neighbor said she saw a green Camaro pull into Denise's driveway. She said she was outside and there was a man staring at her for about a good 15 minutes before she became uncomfortable. Comfortable and headed into her home. She said that she watched this man exit his vehicle and walk towards Denise's door around 2 p.m. The neighbor went into her home and said that she did not know what happened next. The police believe that this man had somehow gained access to the home and overpowered Denise. Denise likely saved her children that day because somehow she managed to place both small children into one crib before this man had likely kidnapped her. This man would later be identified as Michael King. Meanwhile, as everybody frantically searched for Denise, they had no idea that she had, in fact, been kidnapped, bound, and taken to Michael King's home in Northport, Florida, where he had set up what the prosecution later referred to as a rape room. Duct tape and other serious evidence was found inside this room during the investigation. The prosecution believed that Denise had been raped and assaulted in there for several hours. After he had finished assaulting her, he then moved her back into his green Camaro and took her over to his cousin's house, who was. Named Harold Muxlow. While he was there, he had borrowed a shovel, a gas can, and a flashlight. While at the home, Denise very bravely takes King's cell phone while he was out of the vehicle and dialed 911. Her desperate 911 call that she made, she was able to answer some questions from the operator by putting them almost into conversation with King. When she was asked her name, she spoke to King and said, My name is Denise. Why did you take me? When she was asked if she knew her abductor, she said, I don't know you why would you do this to me? At one point during this call, the operator did say, I cannot hear you, Denise, and asked her to turn down the radio. Denise then turns to King, asks him to please turn down the radio, and he actually listens to her and he does. The operator was able to obtain some really important information during this call. The call is several minutes long with Lee just begging for her life and just pleading, please, please let me live over 17 times. She was often begging to return to her children and family. King eventually becomes very suspicious and he starts to ask her where his phone is. He is heard asking Denise, which she says, if I find your phone, will you let me go? When King discovers that Denise has the phone and has made the phone call to 911, he takes the phone from her, hangs up, removes the battery and the SIM card from the phone. Now, I really want to get into detail about these 911 calls because Ultimately, the 911 calls is what failed Denise and her father believes if the 911 calls had been handled properly that day, his daughter would still be alive. In total, 5911 calls related to Denise's disappearance were placed by 5 different people between 3:29 p.m. and 6:30 p.m. on January 17th, 2008. 4 of those calls were routed to Sarasota County, Florida. The other placed by Jane Kowalski, the neighbor, was routed to Charlotte County, Florida. The call made by Jane that was routed to Charlotte County was allegedly completely mishandled. Nathan placed the first call at 3:29 p.m. after he became concerned that his wife was missing from their family home leaving their children by themselves nathan had said to 911 my kids were in the house and i don't know where she is Her husband's call to 911 and the help from her father being a detective was able to kick off a countywide search, and then the search got bigger and it grew over to the neighboring counties. The second call was placed by Denise at 6.14 p.m. from her own kidnapper's cell phone. The call was turned over to the state prosecutors as the key piece of evidence at his trial. Denise had left the line open as she spoke with Michael, and she had attempted to cause Michael to implicate himself, and she had dropped clues into the conversation over and over, so that way the 911 operators could get a full gist of what was happening. The third call came in at 6 23 p.m. from Sabrina Muxlow, who was Michael's cousin's daughter. She was concerned that Michael appeared to have a girl tied up in the back of his vehicle. She even said to the 911 operator, he came over to my dad's house. He borrowed a shovel, a gas tank, and he took something else with him. She further went on to explain to the 911 operator that Denise had actually even tried to escape from Michael's car. And she said, my dad's cousin, Michael, went back and just put her in the car. Now, just a moment, Ago, I mentioned a woman named Jane Kowalski. And Jane was a witness for this case. And her call was so important. And that happened to be the one call that was extremely mishandled. Jane Kowalski's call was placed by a cell phone at 6.30 p.m. while she was driving on US 41. She calls in and she says, I was at a stoplight and a man pulled up next to me and there was a child screaming in the car. She further explained that she heard just these terrifying screams and that she had never heard anything like that before. Kowalski believed that she was witnessing a child abduction. She also identified the car as a Camaro, but stated the color as blue instead of green. She stated that she had made eye contact with the driver at which a hand had came up and started banging on the passenger window. Since she had crossed the county line into Charlotte, the call was routed to Charlotte County 911 Center instead of Sarasota like the other call- calls had It was only after she saw the news the following day that she realized she had witnessed the abduction of Denise rather than that of a child. When she called the Northport Police Department to explain who she was and that she had made a 911 call, it became apparent that the call had not been forwarded to the correct authorities. And this is the call that allegedly could have changed everything. This call was also presented by the state prosecutors as a key piece of evidence in Michael's trial. Although Kowalski's call lasted nine minutes and had included even even cross streets, Charlotte County Dispatch completely failed to send out a car. Furthermore, the dispatcher did not enter Kowalski's information into the CAD until 6 42 p.m., 12 minutes after Jane's call had begun. The last call was placed by Harold Muxlow, Michael's cousin, from a payphone at 6:50 p.m. He was pretty vague with his message and even attempted to hide his identity, but later investigators revealed that he indeed was. to call her. He says to the 911 operator, I'm not exactly sure what the emergency is, but I feel that someone has been taken. It really didn't look like she wanted to be there. He goes on to tell the 911 operator that his cousin had borrowed a gas can, a shovel, and a flashlight. He was told by his cousin that these were to be used to fix a broken lawnmower that was stuck in a ditch. During the call, Muxlow said he had seen a woman in the car struggling with Michael. The woman had even got out of the car at one point and shouted, call the cops. To which Michael replied, don't worry about it, as he pushed her back into the vehicle and he drove away. Muxlow testified during the murder trial and gave crucial evidence identifying the voice talking to Denise during her 911 call that it was in fact his cousin Michael King. At 9:15, roughly 6 hours after Denise was first reported missing, Michael was arrested. He refused to speak to the police and said he wanted to invoke his rights and he was going to remain silent and he had asked for a lawyer. On August 24th, 2009, in Sarasota County, Florida, Michael would finally stand trial. The prosecution presented DNA and other forensic evidence, including hair and personal articles of Denise's found around and within the Camaro, Michael's home, and the gravesite. Other evidence included Michael's change of clothing, duct tape, a shell casing, the shovel, and Michael's cell phone. The prosecution also called witnesses, including Jane Kowalski, and in Michael's cousin, Harold. The defense attempted to provide reasonable doubt by bringing to the jury's attention evidence tampering and contamination, and by even suggesting that Michael's friend is the one who committed the crime. They also stated that Michael has a rather low IQ, and his family members testified to the court how King had an accident while sledding as a child, and an expert witness described this subsequent injury as a divot in his brain. The judge did not approve of the defense at all. The defense rested without calling any witnesses. They knew their case was in the hole. Just four days later on August 28th, 2009 after deliberating for two hours and just five minutes, the jury found Michael King guilty of kidnapping with the intent to commit a felony, sexual battery, and first degree murder. On September 4th, 2009 at 2.45pm the jury handed down the recommended sentence of death in a 12 to 0 vote. As of today, Michael King is incarcerated in the Union Correctional Institute in Railford, Florida, awaiting imposition of the death sentence. Although Denise and several others had attempted to make phone calls, because of the lack of communication between 911 and the first responders, the police and other emergency services had just arrived too late to save Denise. Five 911 calls were made that day, including one by Denise herself from her abductor's phone and one from a witness, Jen Kowalski, who gave a very, very detailed account of events as they unfolded right before her eyes. Failures were found in the way the 911 operators handled Kowalski call, and additional failures were even identified nationwide in the 911 system because of this. The Denise Amber Alert Act was passed unanimously by the Florida legislature on April 24, 2008. This act provides optional training for 911 operators. Denise's family continues to fight for a new law to be passed nationwide that would institute mandatory training and certification for all 911 dispatchers. The Denise Amber Lee Foundation was established in June 2008 to promote such training as well to raise public awareness of the issues that were involved. Nathan really struggled with his wife's death, knowing that all of this could have been prevented. He wanted to make a change in honor of his wife. The missed 911 call led to him suing the Charlotte County Sheriff's Office for Negligence, a lawsuit which he did win. He then later started the Denise Amber Lee Foundation six months after his wife's death with the idea to improve how 911 operator centers work. He said, It's been a journey, but I guess our family really decided early on we're going to do do what we had to do in honor of Denise and make sure her death wasn't in vain. Nathan ends up quitting his day job as a manager at Best Buy and is now the CEO of the foundation. He has worked towards ensuring higher training requirements for 911 operators and has given multiple speeches all over the country regarding these changes. Right now he uses this story to bring awareness to the issue. In his personal life currently, Nathan has been married to a woman named Tanya Lee since 2018. He's doing his best to be able to move on from this tragedy, but also make sure that Denise's name stays alive. Denise's dad, Rick, recently spoke out about the Gabby Petito case, saying that her case in the search for Brian Laundry reminded him so much of his family's ordeal. He said, that's the biggest thing you want, an answer to it all, one way or the other. And even when we did find Denise, that still was not closure, because you never get complete closure. Crimeholics, if you haven't already, I highly encourage you to join Crimeholics Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Crimeholics.podcast where I will have pictures of Denise and her family posted. If you would like to follow me personally on Instagram, follow me at thisiskinzi, K-E-N-Z-I underscore. cremaholics. as always, be aware and take care.